0: you know, a brand is what you buy and a space is where you live. And so, you know, many of us are not buying the brand that is being sold. Here's the evangelical brand. Do you want it? Yes or no? For for many of us, the answer is a no. The good news is that, you know, even though this brand feels so big and domineering, there is much more to evangelicalism than the brand. It's much bigger. It's much more diverse. There's much more to it. But then the bad news is that a space actually has more potential to harm and damage as well. So I believe a harmful space can do more, uh, a harmful space can do more damage than a harmful brand. And that's why what I really care about is not rebranding, cleaning up the brand. I, I care about renewing the space and making it more inhabitable so that we do uh, less damage and more um, good good work of discipleship and and building a healthy walk with God.
1: Welcome to the In All Things Podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking with Dan Stringer about his new book, Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay. As always, if you find the conversation helpful, please take a moment to share the episode or leave us a review. And thanks again for tuning in. In case you haven't noticed, evangelicalism is in crisis. Two recent articles come to mind bearing titles like The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart or Six-Way Splintering of Evangelicalism. The historical movement that sought a third way between fundamentalist and mainline Christianity, the evangelicalism of Billy Graham and numerous American denominations and Christian institutions, seems to be collapsing under the pressure of the culture wars. The term evangelical is a contested and contentious label, one that many younger Christians are reluctant to own. Meanwhile, A recent study showed that the number of Americans who identify as evangelical has increased among those who do not regularly attend religious services. Indeed, instead of being a theological label, evangelical is seen by many as a political brand synonymous with conservative politics. There is also evangelicalism as a cultural movement embodied in its material artifacts that testify to shared values, radio programs, contemporary Christian music, the Christian publishing industry. And all the Christian celebrities it produces along the way. There are also many non-white Christians who are evangelical in their theology but reject the label evangelical, which they see as a white thing. There is also a movement of ex-evangelicals who are leaving evangelical institutions as loudly as possible. So who is an evangelical? And does it matter? Is evangelicalism worth saving? I teach at a confessionally reformed, evangelical adjacent institution. But it strikes me that most of my students would be indistinguishable from mainstream evangelicalism, whether we go by theological, political, or cultural markers. There are a good number of my students who are adept in their ability to articulate and defend their evangelical beliefs, along with evangelical culture. It's not that they are unaware of the problems, but they are more likely to see these problems as distortions or aberrations, rather than something woven into evangelicalism itself. These students want to focus on what's best about evangelicalism. Then there are students, a much smaller number in my case, who are ready to leave because of evangelicalism's pathologies. They mention things like toxic masculinity, abuse of power by leaders, purity culture, and homophobia. Many of these students have experienced these things personally, And they are more likely to want to burn it all down. For my own part, I see the pathologies and am deeply troubled. I sometimes wonder, if the culture wars continue, whether the boundaries will be renegotiated leaving me on the outside. Some of my friends feel that this has already happened. And yet, I still identify as an evangelical. I think what I mean by this is that I hold to traditional evangelical emphases, have been formed by evangelical institutions, and make my living in evangelical spaces. As a former fundamentalist, I am grateful for evangelicalism, but the tensions continue to grow. A recent book by a friend, Dan Stringer, has helped me wrestle with these tensions. What if, Dan asks, evangelicalism is not just a brand, but a space, a space where we live and for which we are responsible. If it is just a brand, it is easier to leave. But if it is still the space in which we live with others, we have a responsibility to leave it better than we found it. The church is wider than evangelicalism, and the kingdom of God is bigger than our local experience of it. And yet all of us are called to care for the ecosystems of meaning in which we find ourselves. And that means wrestling with what it means to live here, why some want to leave and what it takes to stay. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dan Stringer. So I'm joined now by Dan Stringer. Dan serves as team leader for Intervarsity's Graduate and Faculty Ministries in Hawaii. So he is the pastor of Theological Formation at Wellspring Covenant Church in Halawa, Hawaii, a church in the Evangelical Covenant Church, and he's just written a book called "Struggling with Evangelicalism." Why I Want to Leave, and What It Takes to Stay with InterVarsity Press. The foreword is written by Rich Mao. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Justin, for having me on. It's, It's great to be here.
1: Let's start this way with a little bit of your story. I always tell my story as a sort of evangelical adjacent person of mixed ethnicity who somehow found my way into the wider world of evangelicalism through Moody Bible Institute and then Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and then Fuller Seminary. I grew up in a more fundamentalist stream of Christianity, but I was still formed by evangelical culture through Christian radio, like Adventures and Odyssey, Sports Spectrum, things like that. Me too. Your story, though, is even more interesting, I think. Uh, You call yourself a third culture kid. Uh, You're a person of mixed ethnicity, but you also lived in five countries on three continents. Uh, and yet it struck me as I read this book that you were able to develop and maintain this almost stable evangelical identity before you got to Wheaton in college. So can you tell a little bit of that story? And then how does that story shape the writing of this book?
0: Yes. Well, I don't know if I would say it was a stable upbringing in terms of my evangelical identity. I think that came a little bit later, but I certainly was searching for stability and that contributed to the way that I just absorbed what I learned about how diverse evangelicalism was once I got to Wheaton College. I didn't know I was an evangelical until my freshman year of college. But just to back up, uh, I was born here in Hawaii. My mom is Chinese American, fourth generation. And my dad's a white American from California, the Bay Area. They met here in Honolulu. And I was a firstborn child. They planted a church with... A uh, pastor of theirs. They, they were more like the house church leaders. My dad's a dentist, not a pastor, but, um, and my mom's a school counselor. So they were kind of helping with this suburban church plant the year I was born. So my first seven years of, of life, I just can recall singing choruses on the floor with the carpet nearby. And, um, you know, that was my experience of Christianity, asking Christ into my heart when I was six. And then around the time I was seven or eight, my parents experienced a call to medical missions in a place where they needed dentists. It was pretty much, where do they need dentists? And the call was discerned that uh, with the Presbyterian mission, they would go to Congo Zaire in Africa. But in order to go there, we had to do a year of language training in French first. And so my first grade year took place in northern Quebec. Canada, where it's so far north, you learn French really fast. When I was in second grade, we we moved to Zaire and we were there for three years and planned to stay longer. But because of the civil unrest, after we did a year of furlough back in Hawaii, that was my fifth grade year, we were going to go back, but ended up in Louisville, Kentucky, the mission headquarters, as we kind of waited to see how things would develop. And eventually, we were reassigned to another place On the planet that has nothing to do, nothing in common, hardly except that they needed dentists. And that was from Central Africa to Central Asia and the country of Nepal and Kathmandu. We were there from what was my seventh grade year up until my high school graduation, with the extra wrinkle that half of those years, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, were spent at a school in the Philippines. And um, that's where I graduated from high school in Manila while my family was in Nepal. And then once I graduated, I basically chose Wheaton because I knew there would be missionary kids. That was kind of how I identified. I had heard of this thing called third culture kids, you know, where your passport is different from where you live. And that was totally me. I was probably more than a third culture given all the places, more like fifth or sixth um, culture somewhere along there. But I, I fit the definition of a third culture kid or missionary kid. And that was why I chose I chose Wheaton and, and That was where I discovered this term, evangelical Christian. Oh, I think I might be one of those.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that was interesting to me is I read, um, and maybe this is where I got the idea of a stable identity. It was almost like amid all those cultures, there was like this thing, this other Christian identity that you could kind of hold on to consistently. And it was interesting to read of how you were in all these other countries, but maybe listening to or watching uh, McGee and Me or, you know, whatever it was, all of these evangelical subculture things that were able to give you this sense of who you were, even though you were dispersed.
0: That's right. It was kind of a common denominator that traveled well in terms of being able to take it from continent to continent, because wherever we were, we were in some sort of Protestant Christianity. And because of all the geographic um, moves that we did, I needed something to kind of carry that I could carry with me. And I think that was my faith. And that was what turned out to be, as I would discover, evangelical faith.
1: Another thing, another wrinkle to the story is all the different denominations that you have belonged to. And, you know, that's pretty common among evangelicals is to have some some sense of multi-denominational narration of their story. Uh, but you've belonged to churches, I think, in nine different denominations. And so I'm interested in hearing a little bit about that. <laughs> and uh, what are some of the ways that that wide exposure to various streams... Uh, has given you unique lenses to see both the strengths and weaknesses of evangelicalism.
0: Yes, nine different denominations. So so one more to get to double digits. Hopefully that doesn't happen soon. I, I like where we're at. But it certainly has been a quest, a search for denominational identity, similar to the geographic search for home in the first 20 years of my life. I think the second 20 years of my life has been a search for a theological Ecclesial denominational home. And for that reason, um, as well as the fact that my wife and I work in churches, and so we often will go to the job, which sometimes means a different denomination. As a result of all those moves, we are able to really benefit from seeing up close and firsthand how those theological differences or the differences in faith tradition impact not only how we worship on a Sunday but just how we think, what, what we read, and what we emphasize. And so similar to my uh, geographic diversity, I think the theological diversity has really helped me see how much is shared in common, as well as how much really changes a lot by context.
1: Okay, so here we go. One of the perennial questions uh, for people writing about evangelicalism is how do we define it? So who is an evangelical? Anyone who self-identifies is an evangelical. Uh, Anyone who's asking the question, am I an evangelical? Uh, Anyone who affirms particular theological criteria? How have you approached this difficult uh, task of defining what evangelicalism even is? Yes,
0: there is a whole chapter in the book devoted just to that question, but I'll try to summarize one way to think about it for our listeners here. The way I'm defining it for the purposes of the book is that an evangelical person is anyone who inhabits evangelical spaces as their primary spiritual home, which prompts the question, well, what's an evangelical space? And I would say that that is any spiritual habitat whose climate is shaped by one of the four evangelicalisms described in the book chapter, borrowing from Kristen Dumay's work, who defines evangelicalism as four different things all at once. And I think that's why it's so complicated, is because we're talking about at least four different entities who can be appropriately named evangelicalism. Um, they all have the same name and they're all kind of overlap. They're not totally different. But you know, the first one is a theological category, second one is a cultural movement you know, the McGee and Me, like you shared, Adventures and Odyssey. The third one is is the more political white religious brand that we see in election years and mainstream media. And then the fourth one is the diverse global movement. And those four entities all overlap in different ways, but they're not all the same. And they all can be appropriately deemed evangelical spaces. So if any of those spaces, maybe it's all four, or maybe it's just one, if any of those spaces constitute uh, the environment spiritually, where you find yourself living, whether it's where you go to church or the books you read or the places that you spend time and um, are influenced by, then that would be an evangelical space. And if that's your primary spiritual home, that, that's you know you can be in other places too. But primarily, if that's where where your habitat is, then I would say you're an evangelical. Notice I did not say you have to identify. As one.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I wonder, you know, you you point out the fact that these, all of these different evangelicalisms overlap. And as I hear you narrate that, I think of the subtitle of your book, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay. And I think of some of those evangelicalisms, I want to leave, uh, and others, I want to stay. So, how do you tease that out? Or can we even extract ourselves from one of the four or two of the four? How do you think through what it means when you say, why I want to leave? What is it that you want to leave? And then when you say, well, I I want to stay, ultimately, uh, what is it that you're seeing there uh, as those four things interact?
0: Yeah, I can certainly relate to what you're saying about certain aspects being the parts that you want to leave, uh, the political parts, the parts that really don't feel representative of my values or my church or my community. The parts where I want to stay are certainly the ones that I've found more common ground with, shared experience. But even then, it's not necessarily just a slam dunk because I still have mixed feelings about my denomination, about the parachurch organization I work for. So it doesn't mean that even if you ultimately decide to stay, you might not make that same decision your whole life. You might move to a different space. But the book is really about the ambivalence and the mixed feelings and wrestling through the a framework that I think helps people to, you know, make the best informed decision they can about whether to leave or whether to stay. And I'm not saying in the book that you have to stay because your experience might be really different and less mixed than mine. It might be much more negative. And if that's the case, then I would totally understand. And I have, you know, good friends who are much better off having left. But in my particular case, with my particular story, it's been really about the ambivalence and seeing both sometimes the good outweighs the bad, sometimes the bad outweighs the good. But where I'm staying right now is is the the space that I I inhabit as someone in a particular ministry in a particular denomination and church.
1: It's interesting because, you know, I think I already described myself as growing up evangelical adjacent. And uh, the stream that I'm in right now of the Christian Reformed Church has traditionally thought of itself as evangelical adjacent. You know, if you ask some of the older members of my church, if they were evangelicals, they would say, no, we're reformed. You know, Mm -hmm. and a lot of that is tied up with uh, Dutch ethnic identity or a sense that there's a distinctiveness to this Kuyperian reformational stream and I had this really interesting conversation with Kristen when we had her on the podcast as well about being evangelical adjacent, but then also realizing that in many ways, culturally, you've been formed and that these cultural artifacts like Christian radio water down in some sense the differences, the distinctiveness between yeah, groups that identify as evangelical and those that don't. But you also help shift the conversation towards talking about evangelicalism as a space rather than as a brand. And you say that it makes a difference whether we think of it as a brand, if it's a brand, maybe it's easier for us to leave. But if we think about it as a space, uh, that complicates things a little bit. Can you say more about that?
0: Yeah, definitely. So the short answer is that, you know, a brand is what you buy and a space is where you live. And so, you know, many of us are not buying the brand that is being sold here's the evangelical brand. Do you want it? Yes or no? For, for many of us, the answer is a no. And then you get to the question of, well, where do you actually live? What kind of space do you inhabit? That's where it gets more complicated because it's sometimes the bad outweighing the good or vice versa, depending on what that looks like for you or how much you conform to what that space expects of you. But the idea of looking at it as a space, I think is helpful because it moves us away from the question of, do I use this word or not to describe myself, which is still an important question, but I don't think it's the primary question we need to be asking, because sometimes there are cases where that word is helpful to give precision and particularity to the type of faith we practice. And then other times the word evangelical help, you know, it really just helps nothing and makes us misunderstood and harms credibility Basically, I, I frame it in terms of the fact that evangelicalism is more than a brand. So that, that, that's the good news. The good news is that, you know, even though this brand feels so big and domineering, there is much more to evangelicalism than the brand. It's much bigger, it's much more diverse. There's much more to it. But then the bad news is that a space actually has more potential to harm and damage as well. So I believe a harmful space can do more. Uh, a harmful space can do more damage than a harmful brand and that's why what I really care about is not rebranding, cleaning up the brand. I, I care about renewing the space and making it more inhabitable so that we do uh, less damage and more good work of discipleship and and building a healthy walk with god.
1: yeah, so on the the cover of your book, it's beautifully designed by the way, and uh, there is a match and a nail. The the match signifies this tendency that we might feel to burn it all down, and the nail signifies this uh, constructive element of what it would take to build something new, as you say, to make a more habitable space for those who find themselves there. And you outline these four movements, uh, this framework of struggling with evangelicalism, awareness, appreciation, repentance, and renewal. I know that's the heart of the book, but I wonder if you could briefly unpack what this framework is.
0: So awareness is the first posture because we really need to understand that we aren't just generic default Christians, even if our particular expression of faith is the predominant one where we live. I think it's important for evangelicals to know that they're evangelicals, at least that they're in evangelical spaces, that there's a particular type of Christianity that we practice and are familiar with, and it's not the same everywhere around the world. Not every every Christian prays the way that we pray or does sermons the way we do sermons. Um, So just having that awareness that we are not the whole of Christianity and we don't have a monopoly on Jesus, that's why awareness really matters. The second posture being appreciation, that can be really hard and understandably so, for folks who have really been harmed in evangelical spaces and I'm really trying to be clear that I'm not asking people to defend or empathize or justify you know behavior that's been done to you like a Stockholm syndrome sympathizing with your abuser or something like that that's not what I want to do what I want to do is look for you know in those moments where the good outweighs the bad or even when the bad outweighs the good what is the good what is good about your faith journey that was shaped Um, in an evangelical space. Big picture, of course, getting to know who, who God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are. But maybe there are other things, friendships, love for scripture, opportunities to really grow in your faith in different ways. There's probably something to appreciate there, even if it's not the first thing that comes to mind. And then we move to repentance, which is when things have gone wrong, you know, how do we take ownership and confess what's wrong so that we can be part of what's making it right, not only as individuals, but on a collective level. Once we start seeing ourselves as part of a space, then what has the space done that's been a harmful pattern? Not just what have I personally done, but what have we done together that could be improved and needs to be repented of, uh, much as the people of God in scripture uh, repent communally. And then finally, renewal, I try to define it as leaving a space better than you found it rather than just a fix. If an oil tanker dumps oil in the ocean and spills it everywhere, you're not just going to fix that. It's not going to go back to the way it was before the oil spill anytime soon. But hopefully, after a week or two, it'll be in slightly better shape than it was when the spill first happened. So it's the idea of helping evangelicalism continue to be a space where when people decide to live here or are born here, um, it can be a, a place that's that's healthy for them. I'm
1: going to ask you about repentance and renewal in a second. But first, I, I found it really refreshing, your focus on appreciation. And you bring the lens of social work, a strengths approach. Um, you're trained as a social worker. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about the approach that the strengths approach that you bring to the task of appreciation and how that helped you frame. Yeah. uh, The way that you approach evangelicalism.
0: Yeah. So in social work, I was in the mental health field where we were taught to really look at each individual, um, not just as a list of problems, but what uniquely about them do they bring in that mix of who they are. And so once you get to know someone, you kind of learn, oh, they actually have some really helpful resources that they bring. And when we focus on those, it helps actually to address those um, challenges that might be at the top of the page. This person's homeless. This person is incarcerated. This person has no income. Uh, Instead of looking at the deficits first, well, what do they have? When it applies to evangelicalism, for example, if we use a strengths-based approach that might look like, well, we love scripture and we take Jesus seriously. And we try, um, even when we fail, we're generally attempting to do what Jesus says. And we believe that our faith matters, not just on Sundays, but in all areas of life. So if you look at those strengths, that can help us to deal with the headline problems, you know, idolatry, injustice, capitulation to politics, Instead of focusing on how do we how do we fix those problems directly, the way forward might be to do as many of uh, my heroes and exemplars do. They go deeper into scripture. They go deeper into discipleship. They go deeper into taking it seriously. How scripture describes the kingdom of God and shalom and the renewal of all things.
1: So let's talk about repentance then. And um, it does seem like anytime someone makes a critique of evangelicalism, whether that is the abuse of leadership or misogyny or racism, that there is this defensive impulse that uh, evangelicals feel to defend the larger movement or to say that this is a distortion of true evangelicalism or this is fringe rather than mainstream. It's, It's not woven into the movement itself. But you say that saying something like this, saying hashtag not all evangelicals misses the opportunity for communal repentance. So with this individualistic cultural lens that we do tend to have, we struggle with this quite a bit uh, to understand what corporate repentance means. So can you help us understand what it means for us to repent, not of just individual sins, but what does it mean for us as a community to repent corporately of evil?
0: That's a great, great question. And I am not the expert on this because I too struggle with, you know, primarily thinking so individually a lot of the time. So I'm learning a lot from my native Hawaiian sisters and brothers here in the islands, others whose background is from a more um, communal set of assumptions where when they decide something, they decide to do it together. I think that the problem with dividing evangelicals into kind of good and bad is that, If you're in the good camp, which usually that's not us, that's usually coming from people who, who identify as the good evangelicals, not the bad ones. When you make those two categories, then it lets the quote unquote good ones off the hook from addressing problems that affect everyone, you know, and one of the metaphors I use in the book is, let's say there was a city with an air pollution problem that wanted to make the air more breathable, more livable, more sustainable for all the residents of the whole city. Then they would look at, well, what's the toxicity level? What are the causes? Who is being most affected? Um, They probably wouldn't say, okay, are you a good citizen or a bad citizen? Because if you're a good one, then you don't really have to worry about the air quality because you're already riding a bicycle or, you know, you recycle or, you know, you're environmentally conscious. If we care about something that affects all of us, then everybody needs to be part of making it a more habitable space. And we don't really do ourselves any favors when we get so idealistic that we lose sight of what's actually the case instead of, you know, we we say, well, in the real evangelicalism, the air is clean and there's no pollution. Well, what about the real evangelicalism where that is not the case? How do we Make it better, and how do we involve everyone um, moving towards that
1: goal? And so, how does corporate repentance address that? I
0: think it addresses it by taking ownership that, you know, as individuals, we're part of something bigger than ourselves. One of the best examples I've seen was at the Urbana Student Missions Conference in 2018. And in the book, I talk about a video called a litany which is just a 5 minute video but it really set us up well for you know a session that was devoted towards taking collective responsibility for the things that christianity has done wrong and the video is amazing because it's not just about american christianity or even english speaking christianity it's about the different things throughout history that the church has been complicit in the different injustices the different idolatries allegiances away from christ And we have done this. That's kind of the refrain of the video. We did this, Mm. Um, not just who and you, you did it, but we did this. And so scripture gives us a great pattern for how to confess and lament together as we see in the prophets and in the Psalms, whole nations repenting. And I think that can really help us to see that there's more than just the sinner's prayer for individuals. There are, you know, Sinners, as apostrophe, for, for all of us to be, to be praying together.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I've seen in myself is that my defensiveness is often a mask for self-justification, you know, the desire to say that I'm the right kind of uh, evangelical or I'm the good kind, you know what I mean? And, and not wanting to own the fact that I share space, you know, in which people are maybe being harmed. And one of the things I've realized about myself in general is that, you know, part of me being multi-ethnic person in mono-ethnic spaces is I've internalized this outsider status or this outsider mentality uh, that means a lot of times not wanting to carry the insider's baggage and being kind of like, well, yeah, sorry, this is your problem. Good luck with that. You know, I'm an outsider, so I'm going to go over here. Uh, But at some point I'm realizing you have to take responsibility for the place where you're situated and do your best to, as you say, leave it better than you found it. So you could say a little bit more about about that.
0: Yeah, I think that what makes it tricky is that not everyone is in the same place with regard to insider and outsider status. You know, you can look at it in terms of racial insiders and outsiders, gender, income, education. So for anybody listening, I would just say think about the ways that you might be closer to being an insider? What are those aspects of who you are? Maybe it's not your income level. Maybe it's not your your gender or your race, but whatever it is, there are ways that you are probably more familiar and more influential in that Christian environment than say some folks who don't have a particular privilege that you might have or a particular proximity to being an insider. And so when you have that proximity, when you have that Sense of familiarity that I'm not just a visitor. I'm not just trying this out, but this is my home, and I'm kind of part of the crew that makes things hospitable when when people visit and join as newcomers. Then I think whatever aspect that might be is a place to look at how can we make it better than we found it. How can we make this um, a space that we're able to really invite people in, knowing that it will be helpful to them. And we can truly say, please come to this table because you can belong here and we want you to be here. The hard part is when we say that to folks who have already been marginalized in a particular way, and then they become the ones who are responsible for fixing the problems that Mm. they weren't really part of instituting. So it really depends on, on what type of insider you are and what type of proximity you have to this being a home for you.
1: I wonder if you could give me some just tangible examples when you say leave it better than we found it. The, the picture of sort of an oil spill or you know a polluted area where we're maybe picking up garbage or something like that, that's a very helpful image. But what does that look like practically in terms of cleaning up the space that is evangelicalism?
0: Yeah, I think it helps to talk to folks who have had a negative experience in your church or in your ministry. So maybe you're in a situation where somebody was just tired of how all the preachers and speakers that came in were of the same gender, the same race. And at a certain point, they just felt like this is not the place for me because I don't see uh, folks represented with the microphone. Well, that's something we can leave better than we found it. We might not be able to have, you know, the most diverse and amazing lineup, but we can hopefully think about, well, how do we communicate that we want to represent whoever is in this community? And how do we elevate those voices? How do we not just, you know, use them as decoration or to promote something about us, but actually from their ideas. So part of it has to do with, you know, who's who's leading, who's speaking. I think another example, find out if there's particular ideas or words that have been harmful. Um, we might not know what those things are, but our words really can do a lot of damage. And sometimes it requires having those conversations with folks to say, why did you, why did you leave? What was hurtful about it? And then it takes the work onto ourselves of saying, okay, now that we've gathered that feedback, what can we do to prevent that situation from happening in the future?
1: In some ways, your book is responsive to this ex-evangelical movement where people are publicly breaking up with evangelicalism, either going into other Christian streams or maybe even leaving Christianity altogether. And of course, that sort of thing has been happening for years and we both have friends who've converted to Catholicism or Orthodoxy or have de-affiliated with institutional Christianity. But is there something different about this particular cultural movement or moment? And how are you thinking about this phenomenon? And then finally, I wonder what you would say to two different groups of people. First, what you would say to people who are considering leaving? In some ways, this book is written for people who are considering leaving. And then what would you say to the leaders of churches and ministries who are watching this happen? I don't
0: know if I can remember all those questions. That's quite a list there, but I'll start with the, the what can we what can we do when folks are considering leaving, whether you're a leader or whether you're the person considering leaving, or both, you can be both. Um, I think what I would say first is you have options. You don't necessarily have to leave all of christianity because you're leaving this particular organization this church the school that can be a hard thing to say if if you're in a place that teaches you leave this place and you are leaving the faith but i just have to say that's that's not true the faith is so much bigger than a particular stream a particular denomination or church so some folks it's easier to find options than others but at least know that there are options, and do what you can to figure out. Well, if you did leave, where would you go? So that you're not just making such a big decision about your spiritual home in a way that that doesn't have to be done so so suddenly. Um, in the same way that you probably, unless it was an emergency, you probably want you know relocate your physical home without doing some some research of the different options. I think if you're a leader and you know there's folks who are considering departing, I think it's okay to to tell people that that they have options and that whatever our organization is doing well, our church, our denomination, our institution, our school, uh, we believe that God is at work outside of what we're doing here. And if God calls you to a different place, we want to be supportive as well as learn from You know your experience to see if there's things that we can do to to make it better for those who come after you. Now, what were the other questions that you had? Oh, that's great. I kind of forgot them.
1: That's helpful to think in terms of the kingdom and that the kingdom is bigger than my particular church or ministry so that it's possible for me to even send out, um, even if I feel grief uh, at a person leaving, it's possible for me to to send them with blessing uh, and hope uh, that God will still continue to be at work in their life. The other question that I had asked was just about this particular cultural moment and the movement of ex-evangelicals and whether you think that this is a different sort of thing than we've seen before. Is it an intensification of past streams? Is it because social media plays a larger role? How do you assess this particular ex-evangelical movement?
0: Yeah, well, I certainly am not the expert on this movement because I am not part of it myself. There is a book called Empty the Pews by Christy Stroop, which is a collection of different essays by ex-evangelicals, and they all have very different reasons for leaving and different stories, and it's really just a heartbreaking read, but I think it's important for for evangelicals to know kind of the contours of these stories, because there are are common denominators around sexuality, around politics, around doctrinal rigidity, uh, purity culture you know, just really precise gender roles that can't be violated. So I think it's important to kind of learn from what's happening with for folks who have been leaving more recently, while at the same time, recognizing that, you know, like you said, people have different reasons for leaving. And right now, I just think that this contrast between brand and space can be helpful because, I don't know how long ago evangelicalism was branded the way it it is. It hasn't been forever. Um, But I think that's really contributed because when the word gets used in a certain way, it really gets associated with Republican politics and a particular type. Um, So I think that's contributed. Probably technology is always somewhere in the mix. We have access to so many opinions and ideas, um, which which can be a a good place to find like-minded folks as well. Um, So I don't know necessarily all all the reasons why this is happening, except to say that the reasons I care about are the ones that are on us, that are things that we could have done differently, are things that are sins and problems that evangelicalism has perpetuated. So I don't know what percent of the problem falls under that category, but it's a significant enough part of the reason people are leaving, that we have a lot that we can do
1: about it. So Richard Mao wrote the foreword to this book, and he has been a sort of mentor to both of us in different ways. So I wonder if you could say more about why it was appropriate for Rich to write the foreword for this book.
0: Yes, that's a great, great way to end. Um, You know, we both love Rich and have been influenced by him. I think that both his influence on me personally, is probably one major reason. Um, in the book, I trace a little bit of how that influence shaped my own journey of thinking about faith and public life, especially in election years, especially. <laughs> but I think the other part of it is who he is. Even if I had never known him personally, he is someone who has seen many seasons of evangelicalism's development and changes, and um, he's a voice who certainly does not minimize or sugarcoat the fact that we do have problems that are of our own making. And yet he's also someone who is a statesman and representative for evangelicalism um, because of his leadership, because of his, his voice over the years, that I think he's the kind of person who, whose vantage point is really helpful. And I would just you know recommend readers to learn more about his about his work. And there's so many different entry points, you know, there's interfaith dialogue and there's, you know, the whole reform tradition. There's also, you know, reading about his activism, going back to the Vietnam War and being part of the Chicago Declaration in the 70s. And then the way, you know, Fuller Seminary was shaped under his leadership. He's also been involved with Christians for Biblical Equality um, for Women in Ministry. So there's just many different ways that he's got his fingers in some pretty important areas of where evangelicalism impacts people. And, and because of that, he's an important person. Um, that's an understatement. He, he's someone who um, has been, has been part of making it a healthier space and leaving it better um, than we found it.
1: Well, Rich says in the foreword that, that Dan was my student and now he's become my teacher. So uh, the book that we were talking about is Struggling with Evangelicalism, Why I Want to Leave and What It Takes to Stay. Our conversation has been with Dan Stringer. Dan, it's been so good to talk to you today.
0: Thank you so much. It's been an honor. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.